Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by returning guest, Noah Redberg. Noah is a physics laboratory technician in training and a member of the German pro-nuclear movement called Nuclearia. Uh, Noah is also, as I said before, a veteran of the Decouple podcast. Um, go check out our episode from, I guess, slightly um, slightly better times, um, but I think a good premonition of, of what's happening now. It was called the uh, Grim Fairy Tale of German Electricity. Um, but also Noah's recently been on uh, the Nuclear Barbarians podcast um, in a two-part series. Second part's coming soon on synthetic fuels, which I highly recommend listening to. Uh, Noah has a uh, very deep understanding of a lot of the uh, basic chemistry and processes involved. I mean, I think uh, I really enjoyed that episode and I'm looking uh, very much forward to, uh, to following up on that. So do head over to Nuclear Barbarians as well. If you're not already a listener, subscribe and check out that episode. Um, Noah, welcome back to Decouple. It's it's been a little while. Your your first episode was it was a top five in the charts. Um, really, it really was. Yeah, no, it was. Uh, I think people had a lot of interest. Um, we were talking just before the closure of Granda, as well as uh, you know the other two plants whose names I've I've forgotten in the moment. Brockdorf und Grunderreminen. You, I I know that you will never forget those names. Uh, no, I won't. Yeah. It's uh, as a content creator, um, I've been told it's always good to sort of come up with the uh, the title of the content before actually making it. And I think I came up with a, a good uh, title for this episode. Um, you can tell me what you think, but Germany canary in the coal mine for for Western energy. Um, we might we might change that a little bit, but um, just wanted to have you on for a casual conversation about um, how things are feeling in Germany right now. Um, what's going yeah, on? I feel with... very much not casual. Right, right. Um, so wanted to talk about gas, coal, and nuclear in short. Um, but first off, yeah, tell me, tell me about um, you know, I guess the overall sort of gestalt or zeitgeist of uh, as a German of uh, of this this present moment of this energy crisis. Um, take it away, my friend. The overall zeitgeist. Um... I mean, everybody is now feeling an, an energy crisis that at this point is essentially a year old. I, I remember summer last year when we had, um, it was a time when we had our safe receipts demonstrations and also the time I think that you had Mark Nelson on essentially warning of the coming energy crisis. I think you call it winter is coming with yes. uh, Mark Nelson as net start. Um, yeah. So this energy crisis is essentially now a year old. It has existed before the war in Ukraine. Um, and I think it is, that was what I told you last time that I think when, when I was last time here, I thought that, um, Putin would use this energy crisis because it would give him a good hand invading Ukraine. And he actually did. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that of course has worsened the energy crisis, um, in two ways. Um, one way is that, um, now we try to actively, use as, much, as, as little uh, Russian energy as possible. Um, very much immediately after the Ukrainian invasion, Germany tried getting rid of Russian oil and coal, which actually we could do um, quite rapidly. Gas is a different story because it's hard, hard to transport, hard to store, but oil and coal is very much easy to transport. I mean, coal you can just dump onto a field. 
and move in trucks and ships and, ra and trails and what and uh, on rail. Um, oil is a little bit more complicated, but it's it's a liquid. It's a very much um, storable liquid. So um, oil wasn't also the issue. I think um, bef before the war we uh, were getting I think around forty percent of our oil from Russia, and now it's down to like ten percent. Which actually the t the down to ten percent went down really fast. Um, it the the reason for the remaining ten percent is basically because the one refinery that still uses Russian oil is owned by the Russians. Oh wow! That's okay. that's it. It hasn't really something to do with that we physically couldn't. Um, uh, with coal, is that, it was also is that translating into really high prices at the pump? Um, I, you know, I'm not sure what, um, what gas not was higher, for that, Not higher than in the rest of Europe, and uh, okay. the German uh, government has um, reduced uh, fuel taxes. Got you. So essentially, we went from the highest fuel taxes uh, in Europe to the lowest, essentially as low as the EU would allow us to get, but only for three months. And so currently, they are, I think, a little bit lower than they are uh, in other European countries. But if you would, uh, if you would look at the net price, then you, you would get very much roughly the same. Um, they are. They are also the the other countries also did did a similar thing, trying to get as little um, Russian pipeline oil as possible or Russian oil tankers in their ports, and get as much uh, oil tankers from other nations in their ports. And since coal is essentially just arriving via ship from Russia, and not, I mean, you could do by a train, but this long distances over train is just not economical. So since the coal was anyway arriving over ship, it was just a matter of getting other ships. So basically, coal we are coal we are no complete free of um, Russian energy. And uh, with oil, it's a little bit remaining, but it's not really a physical issue. It's more a legal issue. And with gas, that has not been the case. We have no um, infrastructure of um, getting LNG gas in Germany right now. And we have essentially no um, domestic production of gas. So what we are... Um, so what we are left with is if we want to reduce Russian gas, we need to reduce gas consumption. Um, we partially did that. We partially tried to to import gas from other European countries around us over the interconnected pipeline network that Europe has because those other countries have um, LNG terminals or domestic gas production. So that is what we did. Um, I think gas dependency on Russia was also reduced from, I think, almost 45 and not 35%. Where of our gas, I mean, now it's essentially nothing because uh, the Nord Stream One pipeline is is down to um, maintenance. Um, the other pipelines, I think, what is it? The Ukrainian and the Yamal pipelines are also close to delivering silt because because right right now we are we're draining um, gas storage. We're actually not really getting mm. a lot of gas from Russia right now. But over the last months, um, it was getting down from uh, 45 at the point where the Russians invaded. And now um, they were at uh, 35 a few weeks ago. This is the gas storage. And you're aiming, I think the EU is aiming for 90% or something by winters. Yes, that, that, that would be normal that you, um, because those, those gas pipelines have a limited um, capacity of, of gas that you can push through them. And actually, they can't push enough gas through. Um, um, if you look at what we would need on a daily basis in the winter, um, those pipelines can't deliver that. So you would have gas storage that fill up in the summer and empty a little bit in the winter. And even when they are at their most empty in the winter, you would have a little 
um, a little bit reserve to give you security. This would, was normal for the, for the last decades. And last winter it wasn't. They were extremely empty. And right now, I think a few weeks ago, they were at 60%. And now we're going down again since uh, consumption now is um, larger than what um, the Russians and Norwegians and other, the Dutch people can deliver. So we are going down with our gas storage. So a, a couple of questions for you that arise out of this. I mean, in terms of the pain that everyday Germans are feeling and are likely to feel in the near future. Um, well, there's a lot already. I mean, and there's, it sounds like there's a lot coming, but I mean, at this point in time, Germany is a very rich and wealthy country. They can afford to, you know, compete globally um, for new supplies of energy, uh, be that, you know, LNG or, or other sources. Um, but that's very much comes out of um, the reality that there's, you know, thriving vertically or uh, integrated industries in Germany that capture a lot of the value. You have a huge chemicals uh, sector, a huge uh, metal sector, manufacturing sector. Those are all, of course... Um, dependent on plentiful Russian gas. I remember hearing about um, glass furnaces that uh, have been on for the last 20 years and are at risk of shutting down. And if they close, then everything uh, I know is people working working in such glass factories that are very much at risk of, uh, of the whole company going belly up if those furnaces have to be shut down because of right. the shortage. So, you know, I, I guess for a while, um, Germany can coast on being a wealthy country and compete at these these high energy prices. But at what point does this start to make, you know, the underbelly of German wealth less viable? How long can, you know, BASF go on um, in terms of the, you know, the chemical industry in Germany, I've, I've heard is kind of, you know, at threat and worried about needing to close plants. Um, in terms of this cascading effect throughout the German economy, um, how far away does that feel? Months. Months. Wow. Um, I can't give you concrete numbers on that because I don't have the insider knowledge in that industry. But I can give you but, but but I know how how extremely stressed our supply is right now. Um and we are currently using um not that much. I mean it's summer mm -hmm. and we're draining the gas storage again. And we shouldn't be absolutely doing that. If we can't keep the level steady in the summer when you don't have that much um, need for heating, um, how could we even do it in the winter? I mean, maybe until then there isn't really a lot of left. And it's... it's I don't know. There, there isn't really a way how, I, how these companies could really stay afloat. We have seen um, problems... Um, companies that reduced production, um, that were under threat um, from going bankrupt basically immediately after the invasion. I mean, it's, it's, not, and it's really causal to the in, in, in invasion that, um, okay, Putin invades um, immediately after German, uh, German banker, um, companies are in, in trouble. Those are as a result of the energy crisis, which started before the war and is now um, worsened by it. But we saw early effects already in, in the spring, and we are seeing them right now. And you're seeing them at the, I mean, there's also a large aluminium industry in Germany, which has now extreme troubles producing. Um, the same goes for glass and the chemical industry. We see uh, steel plants uh, shutting down. I think it's, I think it was Bavaria a month ago that I read this um, um, steel plant in Bavaria. That went belly up. So um, we are seeing this happening already. 
and it's summer, so we don't have that much consumption. And not every company has already run out of money. And um, they honestly, they can't really afford those gas prices. And they can't even afford... As in, so what just happened... Well, it's not really what just happened. It's what happened over the last months. Um, year ahead, baseload electricity prices. So if you would buy baseload for, for a constant year, which is how um, a lot of thermal plants sell their electricity, um, and which, um, which large industrial sites need... They can't afford to buy volatile, unreliable energy, so they um, go to electricity providers and buy their most of their electricity. They will buy year ahead, and they are now buying it at uh, I think three hundred, three hundred yes, three hundred euros per megawatt hour, and that's that's ridiculously high. That's that's be I think three times of what like Hindley Point C would sell its electricity at its strike price. And that was its famously expensive power plant. And if you look at what, what electricity usually costs over the last years, we were at year ahead by baseload prices of between 30 and 70 euros per megawatt hour. And at those prices, um, German, no industry can compete. No energy intensive industry of which we in Germany still have a lot because we don't, ha we haven't seen um, the this degree of deindustrialization that uh, the UK, the US, France, or Canada has seen. We have actually seen very little deindustrialization. What yes, happened in yeah. deindustrialization mostly happened in East Germany um, because East German industry was just bad. Couldn't it yeah. could only exist in the context of the Eastern Bloc. There we have seen deindustrialization, but not in 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 West Germany, not really. So. Um, there is, uh, for example, there's a German aluminium company, Trimet. They, they make aluminium. Um, they, I think in 2019, they had a revenue of 1.2 billion uh, euros and electricity consumption of 7 terawatt hours. That's, that's a lot, right? We are talking about over a percent of, um, of German electricity. But it's also an extremely large company. It's, it's not that surprising that such a large company producing so much aluminium would need so much energy. But it's, it's, it's a huge portion of our electricity consumption and um, a large company. So, as I said, 1.2 billion euros. If they would buy the 7 terawatt hours of um, electricity at the year ahead baseload prices they now, they now, we now have, they would pay um, 2.4 billion euros. So they would pay twice the revenue they had in 2019 for no, the electricity no. they had in 2019. So um, can German industry survive at those prices? No, it absolutely can't. It can only survive if um, the government can subsidize this. And it probably won't be able to do that in adequately numbers. Over a, on a long-term basis like this, yeah. I mean, I, I'm wondering in Germany if... if um, if if there's uh, a tendency to just blame this purely on the Russian invasion, I mean, we we talk a lot on the podcast. Um, you know, I think Meredith Angwin coined this term. Um, you know, at just the right time, and it's it's certainly worked its way into our community's uh, vocabulary and rubric. And that is the fatal trifecta: over reliance on weather dependent renewables, just in time natural gas, and imports. And interestingly, in this case of Germany. Um, you know, that reliance on just-in-time natural gas and imports are both contingent on Russia. The only way it could be worse was um, if Russia was also the source of, you know, the renewables, um, the solar panels and wind turbines, um, if Russia was China, essentially, in that regard. 
Um, and so cer certainly it looks as, you know, as if, you know, Germany had set itself up um, for, for a real disaster once, once this, uh, you know, reliance on Russia came into question. Um, in terms of the national discourse, um, are people starting to question the energy policy, the energy venda of the last 10 or 15 years? Or is there a, an attempt to sort of brush that under the carpet and blame this entirely on the Russian invasion? So people have different ideas from uh, why we have problems now in our, our gas from Russia. One idea would be, I mean, that, that we don't want to buy their gas anymore and that is uh, the reason why we don't have enough. That kind of was the case the last month, but isn't now. Now it's the case that they don't deliver enough. And um, so also another idea is that, that, the, that then when why don't they deliver, deliver enough? Then essentially to blackmail us, to, to have our storage low, to make us vulnerable, um, to pressure us into lifting um, the sanctions. And that that is very likely that this is the case, but I wouldn't uh, discount the very real possibility that the Russians also can't really deliver what we need. This, tell me, tell the, me more the, about that. The Russian industry um, mostly just makes resources. It doesn't really make... Um, machines anymore, like it did back in the Soviet times. And even in the Soviet times, there were a lot of... The Soviet Union was never autarkic. Um, it, it imported technology from the US and from Germany in the 20s and 30s, um, pretty much until the war began, actually. And um, uh, even after that, um, it, had, um, it imported uh, technology... Especially um, in in the end, when a lot of when a lot of in Soviet industries were uh, collapsing or couldn't just keep up with what um, what the West was doing. I mean, the Soviets in in the in the 80s, when uh, computer technology was really prominent in almost every sector, the Soviet Union had nothing that would really compete with what the, the Western world had at the time. So that was a sector where they. Um, uh, where they bought a lot of technology. They bought, I think it was German technology um, in, in automation and in computer technology, which they used to build their, at the time, largest truck plant they had. So um, the Soviet Union was not autarkic, but it was certainly more autarkic than Russia is. Russia is completely dependent upon technology imports from the rest, but especially Germany. And this is the the... The relationship we had with Russia, in a sense, was really symbiotic. Um, they gave us energy, and we gave them the technology they needed to keep being a modern civilization. From machine tool, to cutting fluid, to, to chemicals, to automation technology, to even the stuff um, handling the gas in their natural gas and oil facilities. Um, the, the German company Linde, which builds a lot of um, technology for, for gas handling and gas infrastructure, um, was largely involved in Russian um, in in the Russian uh, gas infrastructure. Also, I think um, Russia Russia's infrastructure is um, extremely dependent on its railway networks, and that uh, railway network I think is also extremely dependent on um, on imports of technology from Europe, especially I think uh, it was Sweden Swedish uh, Swedish made bearings. So if you have a Russia doesn't have like in the US where you have a lot of um, transport. Uh, I mean, it's, um, cargo in the US, US is often transported either by truck or rail, but also a lot of by truck. So you have a redundancy there. Um, 
in Germany you have a lot of uh, cargo and also humans um, um, moved over the Autobahn. Uh, Russia doesn't have a comparable highway network, especially because it's so large, but also because it couldn't afford one. Um, uh, a lot of its harbors in the north are um, have have problems freezing over. So if if rail isn't functioning in Russia, that's a huge problem. I mean, rail is great, but if only you have rail, you run into issues, and Russia is doing that right now. Those those components aren't lasting forever. They will break, um, especially in this situation uh, where the whole country is a lot of stress from the war, and they can't get enough replacement from the West. And it's very questionable if they have any trust in that uh, replacements from China um, would actually make this. Um, would deliver the components that they need, or if 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 China can deliver those components, so it's it's a lot of talked about that that China would be stepping into um, the huge hole that the sanctions that from the rest le um, left, but it's very questionable whether uh, the Chinese can do that, whether um, they have the right deal, whether their de their deal has the right quality. And it's also questionable whether the Russians actually trust the Chinese to deliver the right deer um, and deliver enough. The, the Russian-Chinese friendship is not as warm as many people in the West think it is. Right. Th this, is this is absolutely fascinating because um, I guess China is a potential winner here, but Europe's losing massively in terms of the price of energy and the threats of deindustrialization. Um, where would that industry go or be replaced? Likely in uh, East Asia, likely China would be a beneficiary. Russia is, uh, you know, this, I think there's been a lot of talk with the ruble rebounding that, hey, I mean, maybe things aren't so bad for the Russians. Um, certainly the sanctions um, aren't biting in, in some metrics, but I think you're illustrating ways in which um, they really are biting uh, from the perspective of maintaining their vital infrastructure. Um, I would you know, say the, rub the ruble course is very much decoupled from the state of the actual Russian economy, especially since the Russians have limited um, their, their, the ability of their citizens to buy foreign goods, to transfer their money into foreign currency, and to leave the country. And in this, in this context, um, I wouldn't take the, the, the strength of the Russian the on-paper strength of the Russian currency as a valid proxy for the state of the Russian economy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about um, Germany's plans to try and substitute um, for, uh, for, for Russian gas, some of the alternative uh, strategies. Um, you know, I've got a story here from Euraktiv. Um, Germany secures four floating LNG terminals in mad rush to replace Kremlin gas. Um, you know, it, it's interesting that all stops... Um, will be pulled um, to to build substitute LNG technology, but of course, um, the path dependency of the closure of German nuclear plants uh, seems to be pretty locked in. We're gonna we're gonna talk about the nuclear side a little bit more, but for now, let's let's talk about um, some of the German plans to try and uh, maintain the status quo and to some degree in terms of um, you know a, an approach that uh, is is very dependent on natural gas. It's it's interesting again to reference Meredith Angwin. Um, you know, one of the things she talks about is, you know, when your electricity system becomes so dependent on just-in-time natural gas delivery, there's a conflict, obviously, between um, your electricity grid and heating priorities. Um, obviously, that's complicated because Germany is uh, so industrialized still. There's the competition with industry as well. 
Um, in any case, a big reliance on natural gas. What are some of the potential uh, substitutes, uh, countries, um, and particularly infrastructure that Germany requires in order to uh, get its natural gas from other sources? So the um, countries that would sell us natural gas are uh, mostly um, in the Middle Eastern countries like Qatar, the US, and Australia. So the US and Australia, I would consider very friendly to us. So this wouldn't put us in a lot of hot water. Um, there are issues with um, the US because uh, the Americans, um, especially the current government, um, wasn't um, wasn't pleased um, of the idea of exporting a lot of uh, natural gas. They, they saw this as going against their climate pledges and um, they have a lot they have a large environmentally minded uh, base in their party so um the us probably so yes the us has a lot of gas infrastructure and exports a lot of gas but certainly it probably didn't build out enough gas infrastructure in order to ad adequately supply um what we need it also has tightened um pollution restrictions on those infrastructure which um took a lot of those um plants that liquefy the natural gas in order to export it, um, they have been um, taken offline or will be taken offline for those up upgrades that they are getting. Uh, a large plant in Texas has burned down. So that is offline. Um, and we, we saw the immediate effects of that with uh, LNG prices on the globe shooting up and LNG prices and gas, not LNG, gas prices and the US going down because the this is also a effect um, the more we buy American gas, the higher the price for gas will be in the U.S. Because for the companies um, that will for the gas and extract it, um, the more they can export it, the more money they can make. So um, if the U.S. exports more gas, gas prices will rise in the U.S. So the American populace and by extension the president in this, this party because they want to win the the midterms. I question I probably they won't. But they have they have they have a um incentive not to export as much gas as we need. Um I actually don't know how how it is in Australia. I, I couldn't tell you that. In and Qatar is a completely different story. They um would like to export the gas to us, especially on long term contracts. That's what they are really eyeing for is because yes they can make a lot of money now but especially in a situation where um, inflation is high, it's questionable if if a lot of money now is is isn't is high. Trump's having um, a steady stream of money for the next twenty years. So what they really want to want us to commit to is a long term supply contract uh, over twenty years. And the 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 ruling coalition, which is largely comprised of the Green Party, doesn't want to do that. It wants gas from Qatar. It even sends its, its, um, it's even sends our Green Vice Chancellor to Qatar to bow down in front of the Emir. But it doesn't want to commit to a 20-year um, gas contract. So, so that's that's um, that's a touchy subject there. In terms of the uh, domestic capacity to receive that gas, um, do you have any idea about the viability of of these floating LNG platforms that are you know being constructed apparently in in record times to hopefully be online? I think by February. Um, I know I know of one, which it's um, seventy five terawatt hours uh, um, regasification facility. 
they are currently building and they are hoping to get in online um, by the end of this year. Whether they can do that is questionable. But uh, it's safe to say that they will probably get, maybe that's, maybe they will get some, but they definitely won't get enough um, regasification plants built and operational um, before the end of the winter. That, that I can tell you for sure. Those, those regasification plants don't have the capacity that those large pipelines have. Right. I mean, obviously, obviously, there's implications as well with, I guess, the spot LNG price um, and just the overall price of gas rising um, worldwide with Germany competing with much poorer countries for supply um, with the rolling impacts um, on industries that rely on natural gas as a feedstock. I mean, it almost feels like this is an ethical component here where, yes, Germany will be able to avoid some pain, but it's going to come at the expense of poorer countries who just won't be able to afford um, the available gas. Pretty much. Um, it's, it's not just whether the gas is available. It's also a question, can the gas be shipped? And um, so so this is this is a huge uh, concern. It's also a concern that we now have with, with coal, because now the, the government is trying to get as much coal back, not just German, so the Austrian government is, is reactivating the Melach twist coal power station. So uh, they, w they want to get a lot of coal, and it's also the question, do we even have the shipping capacity to handle all that coal? Because the, for the last uh, decade, essentially, we tried to have less coal. So uh, it's the same with, 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 with oil. We, we were always saying, okay, we want to reduce oil, we want to reduce coal. So essentially, people didn't really invest in new um, distillation for refineries for, for oil or coal handling infrastructure. So what we had deteriorated, not new ones didn't really came along. So uh, it's also there are infrastructural concern um, regarding will there be enough ships to carry all that coal and gas? Well, I mean, you've described this um, very symbiotic relationship uh, between Germany and Russia in terms of you know, yeah, getting raw materials. Yeah, if Russia was a friendly state, it would have been beautiful. Right, right. But it I mean, isn't. <clears throat> We I deluded think, ourselves into thinking um, that the Russian have, or especially the Russian government, has even remotely um, good intentions. It it never did. It, it was probably to anyone that um, that was willing to accept to see the grim reality as it is. Um, it was obvious, essentially, just two decades ago, that the Russian state is not heading in a well direction and won't be a friendly and reliable partner like the other Eastern Bloc uh, right. countries became. Right. I mean, I, I guess this raises the question about whether there's any um, possibility um, of Germany splitting from the Western alliance. I think people were, were impressed with, um, and maybe Russia didn't anticipate, the um, degree of, of Western cooperation on sanctions, for instance. Um, I know I'm asking you uh, to predict the future, which is, uh, you know, always a, a difficult thing to do. But, you know, I remember seeing uh, German trade unions, for instance, coming together um, and saying, you know, we shouldn't be boycotting Russian fossil fuels. It's going to impact um, a lot of workers, a lot of jobs. I mean, is there an element within Germany that is going to look for a, an easy way out here and attempt oh, Definitely. To they are probably for two months already. Um, there's a lot of... Leiden's suffering pressure uh, right now in in Germany. I mean, not just in Germany, everywhere else also. But um, 
Like, will Germany bend so, the knee in this in this kind of battle of wills between between Putin and you know freezing in the winter? Do you think there's any any possibility of that? Or again, I, I carry on with with what you're saying. You know, is there is there kind of a fifth column? Um, you know, within Germany, that's uh, oh, there, there, there's definitely a fifth column. I mean, essentially, uh, the entire German intelligentsia had has large sympathies for Russia. There's a lot of um, Russia philly in in Germany, um, especially um, um, into the cultural creators, to the media creators, um, which is which is the main reason why German politics was for the last two decades so extremely blind. Towards the danger um, that that's coming from Russia, and they, they since day one, um, you you see um, the the cultural elites in Germany trying to push the government into not supporting Ukraine, into into um, an almost deluded um, sense of of pacifism that that they have, and an extreme. <sighs> Extreme um, degrees of of what about is and like the smallest um, defects that the Ukrainian state has um, is held up as almost equally to the crimes against humanity that the Russians are committing in Ukraine. Um, so yes, there exists such a fifth column, and it did for decades. So this is completely unrelated um, from the energy issue. Um, there, yes, there, there is this fifth column in Germany, especially into, in, 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 in the. Uh, it's, it's, it sounds stupid, but it pretty much is uh, the, the, the cultural elites, um, the academia of, of journalists, of artists, of writers, poets, singers. So yes, there, there is, there is such a, there is such a fifth column. Um, if you would, however, talk to the, 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 the everyday German, they. They have been certainly influenced by this, but most can surely see um, that what uh, Russia is doing in Ukraine uh, is just terrible. But what they are also seeing is that they are suffering from it. And if their suffering becomes enough, they will certainly um, have no issues Buying Russian products and lifting, uh, being for uh, buying Russian uh, gas and energy and lifting the sanctions. And this is also a thing. If we would to decide to to say, okay, we we quit this um, the stuff. We don't want to boycott Russian energy in the slightest. Will we buy everything that we have? If we would do that, it's still the question. First, can and second, want the Russians or to put it better, Putin and his cronies deliver the energy. Um, one reason is he needs he needs the supplies back. So until he d- doesn't uh, get this, he will probably not be um, very, very kind to us. And another reason is that it could just be that until that point, Russia deteriorates so fast that they can't deliver so much energy anymore. So the Russians might end up at the point where they have to decide, okay, which country... Um, to, which, to which country will we sell energy? And they will certainly sell Germany energy if they have any. Because if they could get one country to lift the sanctions, they would choose Germany. We're probably the most important um, 
exporter of technology to Russia for, for the Russians. So and also they have have they have the, they have two direct lines to us through the Nord Stream pipelines. That even if if like the Polish Navy would uh, blockade um, the Baltic Sea or um, the Ukrainians and Polish shut down the other pipelines, we could get um, energy through those gas pipelines. So this is certainly the case that if the Russians have gas, not just in Russia, but also have the capability to um, get uh, the gas to the to the Wilborg uh, end in, in Russia, where the gas enters the Nord Stream pipelines, if they can get it there and they have gas, um, they would we would be probably the first ones they would sell it to if uh, we would lift um, our sanctions. And then there is a question, would Germany lift those sanctions? So looking at the current government, no, they are definitely not in the mood to lift those sanctions, but they are also definitely not in the mood to lose their careers and be hated by everyone. So if the pressure from, I don't know the street, usually um, the people in Germany are not that, not um, that towards applying a lot of pressure on the street, if you, especially violent protests, protests in Germany only ever come from the extreme right and the extreme left, which are not that um, politically potent groups in Germany. So I could not envision a Sri Lanka-style scenario where starving protesters um, storm government buildings. So that would probably not happen. But there could very much um, be just very normal protests um, of of people that can't heat their homes, can't afford gas um, for their cars, that can't afford uh, the ever-rising um, prices in the supermarket for food, that can't afford to buy new clothes, that have lost their job because uh, the companies in which they um, worked collapsed or are under under pressure of collapsing. So if if the pressure from rotation marks the street, the people rise enough then it could very much be that the German government um, would submit to the Russians or collapse on its own, be quickly replaced by anyone um, that would do that. But also another thing that you have to have to know about German politics, essentially everyone doesn't want to get, see the far-right party gaining any power. So, And the far-right party is very much pro-Russia, Pro-fossil fuels, so um, they could gain significantly off the, from this crisis if the crisis worsens. Uh, Germans are quite reluctant to, to vote for the far-right party. They, they get their fair share of roughly 10% of the population, but the other 90% don't seem to like them very much, except in, in East Germany um, in, in some regions where they are very popular. But in, in general, mo- really most Germans um, don't like them and, and will be reluctant to vote for them. Um, it's probably in, in other European countries we see um, more real, people are more willing to vote for a far-right party in, in France, in Netherlands, Hungary, or Austria, Poland. So, so that is the case. But in, in Germany, they are, they are, they are, we see a real reluctance to vote for uh, left-wing or right-wing extremist parties. Um, also, you have to know the, the left-wing extremist party, the, the far-left party, Die Linke, um, which, by the way, is a, is a direct... Um, its, its ancestor is the ruling party of East Germany. Ah, okay. One should keep that okay. in mind. 
At least the, 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 the East German side of it came out of the ruling party of East Germany. The West German side of the is a splinter group from the main Sotdem party. So the far left and the far right party are pro-Washer. They were ever pro, they were always pro-Washer, and they are for lifting sanctions. The far left party is in shambles. They will probably not be able to gain a lot of this, but the far right party might. If 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 it comes to that, so what probably all parties in Germany will try to avoid is this party gaining any popularity. So this could end that if they feel um, the government is unstable, we can probably not keep it together. Uh, we would lose any election that can, that will come up to the far left party. Um, the industry are dying. The industry is dying. People are freezing. Um, they will. Very li- I would give it a um, huge likelihood they will submit to the Russians. Wow. You know, I'm uh, coming to you out of Canada here, and you know we've shown some flexibility with, um, with our sanctions. Um, we have, a, I think, a critical piece of uh, infrastructure, a turbine that's required by the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, um, <clears throat> which was sent to a Simmons uh, affiliate here in Canada to be maintained um you know you've talked a lot about russia's dependence on you know western technology f- to keep its infrastructure running this is a nice example of that and i'm you know i would imagine it's all, it's all western technology it's it's even it's even countries like turkey it's it's not just that oh it's just germany and maybe the us it's it's essentially the entirety of europe north america japan when those countries don't export to china they uh, to russia they have a problem right and, and so you know canada under i think a lot of diplomatic pressure from germany has uh you know, been flexible, shall we say, uh, to be charitable um, with its sanctions to release this vital piece of equipment, um, you know, with the hope that this will enable Europe to secure the gas it needs not to not to freeze this winter. Um, so, you know, we're already seeing um, perhaps some uh, buckling of that iron will um, of the West uh, to sanction Russia severely for its actions in Ukraine when it comes to these geopolitical concerns. And I think we see that, you know, quite often that energy uh, trumps climate um, and, you know, these pragmatic decisions will get made. But that was a very interesting analysis of, you know, the German uh, political spectrum and and what's likely to occur. I've been, you know, predicting a right-wing populist backlash um, for some time in Europe, um, which would, you know, be pretty terrible for for climate, obviously. Um, But interesting to hear about how that may play out uh, more specifically in Germany. you know, we would be remiss to not be talking uh, with a nuclear expert from Germany about the situation. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I think you've earned that that title. Um, you're certainly uh, quite passionate about the topic. Um, so I wanted to touch briefly on, um, there we are, on the, uh, the nuclear closures, how that's proceeding. Um, but actually, first, I just wanted to briefly talk about, you know, this coal substitution for gas that we're seeing. Um, you've, you've mentioned it a little bit in terms of the import capacity, but just briefly, Germany's famous for its um, brown coal, for its, its lignite coal. Um, are, are we seeing a big uptick in that regard? I'm, I'm curious, you know, it seems like when a coal plant is um, brought offline in Germany, I think it's carefully mothballed. <laughs> it seems like your capacity to bring old coal plants back online seems to be robust whereas there's a real reluctance to uh, reconsider the phase out of the remaining three or try and bring the other three plants that were closed uh, at the end of last year back online. So maybe we can 
tie that question together. Um, what's going on with Lignite, and uh, and let's let's uh, chat a little bit about uh, the nuclear closures. So um, Lignite is twenty percent. Or, or last year, it, it, it depends. It, it fluctuated over the years. Last year, it was twenty percent. Twenty twenty, it was a little bit below that. Twenty nineteen, it was also roughly twenty percent German electricity. So um, Lignite runs in middle last. I don't quite know what would be the um, the right English term it's essentially it's still kind of base load but it also does as it it does base load would essentially mean we all just run at a steady power but what it essentially does it's it's mostly running at high power levels but it's also throttling a bit because it needs to make way for renewables and it needs to come up a little bit for um for when uh, the renewables um have don't produce that much so yes lead night um lead power plants are they, the German lignite power plants have good load for following capabilities, but they are mostly um, running at high capacity factors. The um, bituminous coal, hard coal power plants, they all import coal from outside of Germany. They have quite, they have a lot of, they have um, capacity factors that are a lot lower, especially because sometimes they are in 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 when there is really high demand and not enough. Wind or solar, they are brought back um, as in, in emergency situations as reserve power plants. Uh, like also gas power plants are also done sometimes. And so that is how we use the, the coal power plants in Germany. Last year we had 100 out of our 490 terawatt hours of electricity was uh, lignite. And I think 50 terawatt hours was um, bituminous coal. 50 terawatt hours was gas. 66 terawatt hours was nuclear, the rest was various renewables. Um, you also have to keep in mind um, that there are a lot of gas power plants outside of the German grid that made electricity for various um, industrial sites, which to my knowledge are, um, amount to 40 terawatt hours. So in addition to this 50 terawatt hours um, of gas on the public grid, there was also 40 terawatt hours that was privately produced and privately consumed. Keep that in mind. It's, it's not just the, the 50 terawatt hours on the grid that um, have to be replaced when we talk about gas. So, um, as I said, those late night power plants, that they are mostly, um, they are not, there is not a lot of spare capacity that can be come on, that can come online without reactivating old plants, which have been um, mothballed and have been in reserve. Um, when, we, when we talk about that those power plants are in reserve, doesn't mean that they come that back quite easily, especially those which have been longer in, in this reserve function. They have seen not that much maintenance over the last years. So it's not that clear how, how well those plants can be brought back, especially since many of the people that work there um, moved into other fields or into other power plants. So I'm, um, I'm friends with someone who, is, who works at the Austrian Mellach power station. Which is a bituminous coal plant there. Um, they have, I mean, it's, it's a coal and gas plant. One one unit coal, two units gas. Um, the coal unit was closed very recently. He worked there, then he transferred to the gas units, and now the coal unit is brought back. And I've heard a lot of um, the issues that they have with, with bringing that plant back. It's very much possible, but they are looking uh, for people to do it right now, and. 
of course, they can find it, but it's also a question, can they find it in, in the right amount of time? In Austria, it's just this, this one coal power plant. And in Germany, it's, we would talk about dozens of coal power plants um, that would need to come back. And I, I have doubts that we can win all of those power plants back. We could theoretically bring back up to 40 gigawatts of power plants that have been in, in various um, degrees of being mothballed and decaying. Whether we can do that, I'm highly doubtful. Um, historically, over the last years, we didn't really ever see going more than 26, 27 gigawatts of our 40, coal, 40 gigawatt coal fleet um, being online. Um, even in situations in the past where the coal was definitely very much needed on the grid, um, it didn't go over that. So, um, can they bring like so that would say that probably around thirty gigawatts of those, thirteen gigawatts of those, or at least ten, can't just go online that easily. So, it, so, so the question is, um, how likely is it um, that we can, we can uh, bring those into an operational state until the winter is coming? Um, and when we talk about Austria, a country of eight million people that has issues recommissioning a 300 megawatt plant, then Germany, um, 10 times the population recommissioning 30 times the plants in, in capacity would probably be a larger issue. So I don't see that I, I, I have I, I don't see that all of those 40 gigawatts can be available in the winter. I would be expecting more like 30, 33 in that region to be really operate in a good operational state, a reliable operational state by winter. Wow. You know, it's interesting in Ontario where we had this nuclear powered coal phase out, we actually demolished, you know, the, the old coal facilities. I mean, they may have been end of life anyway. Nancy Coke. Nanticoke, I've, I've famous, been listening to that episode. Yeah, famous pictures of the uh, the smokestacks uh, being demolished, coming down. Um, but I guess it's my understanding that hasn't occurred as much in Germany with these retired plants. They haven't been demolished. They've been been mothballed. Is that correct? Mostly, we haven't seen that many um, being really destroyed. How, do, how um, does that compare with with the nuclear plants that have been closed? Um, I mean, I've seen a, a footage of a of a cooling tower coming down. I think that was, was probably Philipsburg. Right. Is there more of a rush to, uh, you know, erase the legacy of nuclear? Yes, and, they start. Um, they start. Decom- they they start taking the plant apart a few months after commissioning. Um, with the three plants that have been um, closed last year, they um, are not that fast because for Grunde and Brockdorf, they currently don't have the license to decommission and to deconstruct the plant. In Gunderreminen, they have the license and they have already started uh, deconstructing that plant. Um, there has been a study by the TÜV, which is how to explain TÜV to non-Germans. It's um, it's an institution that um, that checks um, several or a lot of um, types of, of machines that you can have. It it proves it proves. Everything from cars to power plants. If you if your car isn't certified by the TÜV in Germany, you are not allowed to drive it on the road. So that's that's what the TÜV does. It it, it proves it proves the state of of, all, of various kinds of machinery. So um, the uh, government of Bavaria, of the Bavarian state, 
has um, been uh, very supportive of the idea of extending the lifetime of the ESA-2 nuclear power plant, which is currently, currently still running, and also um, eyeing the, um, the possibility of um, taking the Grundremingen C plant back online, which is the only one which, where they started deconstruction. And I think it was a month ago that the study that the TÜV did came out, and uh, TÜV, the TÜV was um, what essentially said that there are no real issues continuing the operation of ESA-2, and that Grundremingen C is still in a state where it could be brought back. But with, with in the past, they have been really fast with uh, decommissioning. For example, in Philipsburg, we see uh, the flushing of the primary circuits just months after the plant has been closed. And in the summer of 2020, we saw the cooling towers of Philipsburg being uh, detonated um, just six months after the plant and was shut because, down. Is this because nuclear falls under the same ministry um, as the, the environment ministry? It's the Ministry of Environment and Nuclear Safety. It's a very bizarre um, conglomeration of, of uh, files in, in one, uh, one ministry. So um, the way that decommissioning is done in Germany, it's, it's, um, it's done very, very fast. For example, when you see in, in Great Britain, this, this thing where you um, close off the reactor for 100 years, wait until most of the activation in the, react in the building has decayed, where you can safely just decommission it normally, um, that isn't done in Germany. So... Um, so we try to um, decommission the reactors as fast as possible. Honestly, try them in the most expensive way possible. Um, because every every component has to be stored in this little um, Konrad container. So um, the reactor or the steam generators can't be taken out whole and stored whole. Um, they have to be in situ, um, sought into little bits and then put into those uh, storage containers, which makes it expensive. And this is pretty much started, uh, pr the process started um, really after. So so the timetable of decommissioning we're talking about is uh, roughly two decades, of which most of the work is, is already done in the first decade. So yes, they are, it, it's the, um, it's, it's mandated that they move this, this quickly. And is that is that for ideal? I mean, it's, it's, you said it's uneconomic. It, it doesn't make a ton of sense. You, you let the hot stuff decay quite quickly, as as I guess the British are doing. It, this is for ideologic and political reasons, I guess that that this is sped up in this way. Yeah, kinda. I think one one would very much suspect um, they they don't want to those plants um, hanging around so that anyone could get the idea of taking them back online, like you did in Canada. You took back essentially offline reactors back onto the grid. And when we had a gas crisis in Europe in, in 2007, 2008, um, Bulgaria, Bulgaria tried um, to uh, tried, um, consider taking back online nuclear power station, which um, had been neglected for essentially two decades and had been in a very bad state at that point. And that was very much worried. But the thing is that they were really secure that the Atomausstieg was a done deal. It wasn't really... For, for the last two decades that this was really threatened that someone would talk about bringing back right. um, the impossible so I wouldn't I wouldn't um, account this to them having fears that someone would ever bring back a closed nuclear power station um, it's essentially um, 
the anti-nuclear movement that, that sprung up in the 70s in Germany has did something which also the Green Movement did. In Germany, it's called the Ritt durch die Instanzen. So the people that were part of the counterculture at some point realized that if they are always part of the counterculture, they will never really get the chance to realize their ideals. So what they did is becoming um, the... Mainstream. The establishment. Not just the mainstream, the establishment. Becoming the establishment. Getting their people into the nuclear regulators, into the um, environmental ministry, into um, the power companies, into the utilities, and thus being able to dictate um, which way the nuclear power sector had to operate. And it was purposefully designed to be the most detrimental to its um, to it being economical. In, in 1990, um, the then... Um, Ministerpräsident of one of the German states, Gerhard Schröder, which then had uh, the first, uh, I think the first, red-green coalition. Um, he, he was essentially comparable to a governor of, of a state. And um, the coalition agreement of the Green and the Sockdam party but then purposefully said that they will oppose any, any ways of solving the problem of nuclear waste before there isn't a clear timetable for a nuclear exit in Germany. So this was their demand from the very first time. We will try to do our very best to prohibit um, any safe way of disposal of nuclear waste being done until the German government isn't really committed to, um, to ending the use of nuclear energy in Germany. And this is important because the state of, of Niedersachsen, Lower Sachsen in Germany, was the state where the um, DGR was supposed to be in Germany. Right, right. So just briefly, I guess, in closing, um, what's what's the state of the discourse on maintaining the, the remaining three reactors? There's a tweet that's gone a little bit viral. Um, I think it's Professor Ramsdorf um, stating... Yeah, stating that uh, the last three reactors won't make a difference anyway, that the fuel is sourced from Russia, um, you know, essentially that they won't make a difference in time. Can you can you talk about the the discourse? Um, maybe let's focus on that tweet and, and dispel some of the uh, the inaccuracies there. Yeah, nothing <laughs> of, of what that dude said is right. It's simple as that. Germany, um, uh, Russia has only very recently gained the capability of manufacturing the fuel elements that Western uh, type reactors need, and they never really sold that to any any client. So no, there was never any uh, fuel built by the Russians used in a German reactor. So that is that's one. Then there is a question: Was there ever any fuel enriched by the Russians in German reactors? And yes, that has been the case. In the past, before Germany has sufficient uh, enrichment capabilities, there is um, far more enrichment capabilities in Germany, and those capabilities will remain because um, the enrichment plant in Germany doesn't have a set closure date. So, no, we can enrich our own fuel elements, and we can also build our own fuel elements. There are only ever two companies that build the special type of fuel elements that German reactors need. That is... Um, uh, Westinghouse in Sweden and RNF, Advanced Nuclear Fuel, a subsidiary of Fremitome, which has a which has its uh, factory also here in Germany. So um, the fuel elements that we would um, would uh, use in our reactors 
would be built either in Sweden or in Germany, and enrichment would be very likely done in Germany. The uranium um, would be most likely sourced from Canada or so possibly possibly from uh, Kazakhstan. Um, I think there are some that come from from Africa. But if, for example, we could, and I think, to my knowledge, we very much can, if we would make new fuel elements, source it from Canadian uranium. So there isn't really there isn't really any any involvement that the Russians need to have in those fuel elements or did in the in in the past time. This is absolutely ridiculous. This is it's a lie somewhat based in reality in this in the way that the eastern european vver reactors the the soviet um, designed reactors use fuel elements that until recently could only ever be bought from the russians but even that isn't the case anymore the, the swedish the finnish uh, not swedish the finnish the the czechs um the slovaks and what is the the Hungarians and the uh, Ukrainians and the Bulgarians? They use they use those Russian fuel elements. We never did, and now they are going to Westinghouse to Sweden to get their fuel elements from there. There's a process that Ukraine started uh, right after the Crimea invasion, and has now completed. And also the other Eastern European uh, nuclear power plant owners also doing this. This is utter lie. We don't need Russia for our fuel. In Germany we never did need Russia and now um, even in the countries that, that use Russian reactor technology, they will never again use Russian fuel. So this is an utter lie. Also, there is still a little bit of fuel left um, to make to make a significant impact in the winter. Which is a completely different thing there that we could talk here. There, one thing is reactivating Grund and Brockdorf, which we can. Right now, they are in a state that probably in two to three months they can be brought back online. And continuing the operation of the three reactors that are currently online into the spring. So we could have um, five of those giant reactors, seven, or not almost seven gigawatts electricity production equal in size to the country of Austria, could be online during this winter. And this will make a damn significance because right now we probably might not even have enough um, assured capacity to meet our baseload demands. Not to mention even our um, not to mention even our average demand or peak demand. So those reactors, not, not just um, electricity production, but just the sheer Amount of gigawatts that we can that we can um, securely have on our grid, those up to seven gigawatts would make a huge difference. And what's what's the state of the politics around this? Um, is there any chance um, for the remaining three to run at lower power, as you're saying, until spring? Um, what's what's the state of the politics? I, I think the Christian Democrats and the Greens um, recently said this is this is not on the table. Um, no, the Christian, the, um, the the Christian Democratic Union, which is the conservative party in Germany, um, they recently um, um, started a vote in the Bundestag, um, in which they said we we want to operate those plants in the winter, and it was denied. The coalition voted against it, and it didn't get a majority. Um, so for now, but what is now, a few weeks maybe, this is off the table again, 
Um, but actually, the 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 Christian the conservatives didn't let that sit on them. They are speeding up again. Um, that they want to um, they want to keep those plans for now. And also, the Liberal Party has been doing this for for the last weeks, for 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 some reason, probably to keep the coalition some some coalition agreement that they have with the um, Social Democrats and the Greens, in which they are the ruling coalition right now. The um, all Liberal um, members of Parliament voted against this, and so it so that's that's why it didn't happen, which. I think they will regret. Uh, they they are trying to find reason like oh, this 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 isn't that far enough or or something. Yes, we are for nuclear, but but, but they find some reason, right? Despite them saying that they are for nuclear or, or like not for nuclear, but mm, for a slightly delayed atomarstieg right now. Um, but they are finding reasons why they 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 say that this vote was right. But the reality is um, this costs time. Right now we are at a point that if the government says now, okay, enough is enough, we will continue to operate for a short time. Um, Grund and Wartdorf could be probably up and running in late October, early November. So right at the time when winter begins. If we want those plants online when winter begins, we need to give the order now. If we wait... They still can be brought back online in around two to three months. But if we delay the date by which we order them being back online, we also delay, delay the date by which they can be back online into the winter when we actually need them. So damage is being done by waiting. And what the Liberal Party is now doing is dangerous because we are losing time. I guess it's it's interesting. I mean, this this just demonstrates such a strong anti-nuclear um, commitment on on behalf of the establishment that even in the midst of such a dire energy crisis, even with the risk of you know collapse of much of the industrial sector, they're still so adamant. Even just about delaying the closure by what would amount to probably four months, five months, um, just is is extraordinary, and I think really speaks to the strength of the anti-nuclear movement. And as you're saying, that transition from counterculture to the establishment, it's it's extraordinary. And I guess really <clears throat> um, ingrained establishment, but they are losing grip on 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 the power that they have. Fast, they have already lost um, support from the people. The people, um, if I think uh, um, Nuclearia started uh, commissioned a survey. Around, around a year ago, because there wasn't back then there wasn't really a lot of of reliable data how Germans thought about nuclear energy. We knew old surveys which said oh Germans don't support nuclear energy, and we kind of felt the tide seems to be a little bit shifting back then in, in 2021. So we thought okay, we need better data. So we commissioned um, uh, a study. We have been accused by the anti-nuclear people to do that, to say, oh, Germans are pro-nuclear and to, and to cheat or something. But that was never the intent. We actually didn't know. We wanted to get a real insight into how Germans think. So we were one of the first who commissioned such a study. And we found that even in the summer of 20, um, 2021, that the tides had changed a bit. That it wasn't that only 20% of Germans support nuclear energy. We were back then already at 40 
And over the time, over the last year, those 40% grew to now 60%. We've seen um, also interesting demographic shifts because back then in the summer, it was mostly younger people that were for nuclear energy. Now it's more older people, which is interesting. The, the, the young people didn't change their mind that much on nuclear energy, mostly the older people, but not really the green people. We also saw it through parties that were only like... Um, um, that now um, I think in, in every party affiliation of, of voters, we see that the majority is for the continued operation. Only in the Greens they are not. In the Social Democratic Party, in the far-left party, the voters, there is a small majority for nuclear. In the far-right, conservative and liberal party, there is a giant majority of far over 80% of, of their voters, which are support um, supportive of nuclear energy in general, not just like wanted to delay some um and, and obviously obviously date. you know public opinion is is important to politicians but I, I would think you know the if the labor movement you know who are who are i guess flirting with this idea of sort of softening sanctions against russia or some of the big industrialists I remember hearing the head of volkswagens you know advocating that we should stop the phase out or at least delay it i mean one would think oh that, he has he has been saying that for i think almost over a year now yeah. He's been also saying yeah. that before this energy crisis was really bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, this is a moving story. Um, I'm uh, very grateful, Noah, to have had you on. Um, you've clarified a lot of things for me, uh, both from a, a technical, cultural, and also just a on the ground feel. Um, so I look forward to touching bases with you um, in you know several months' time, seeing how the story is developing. But uh, thank you very much for for making the time. Um, I think you very much deserve the uh, aforementioned title of nuclear expert. Um, and we're, we're very grateful to have you back on Decouple. Thanks. Thank you for having me on. It was, it, was, it was a pleasure and it was an honor. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.